The Homance Chronicles. The female equivalent of a bromance. So many poor choices. But so many good takes. But so many poor choices. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, this is the Whole Man's Chronicles, and I am Sarah using my new headphones. Woot woot. And I am Nicole. I wasn't sure if you were actually done. Like that woot woot was just kind of mediocre. I was like, Yeah, I know. Oh, oh okay. We're just well, moving right along. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, we have a guest today, so might as well get right into it and not talk about Sarah's headphones, right? <laughs> Except for our guest today. Her her name is giving me anxiety and I feel so bad when I don't pronounce people's names correctly. So I phonetically wrote this out, but I'm so sorry. Please correct me if I do not give Butcher it, it terribly. Yeah. If I do not give it the je ne sais quoi that it, it deserves. <laughs> it does deserve. <laughs> it does deserve some je ne sais quoi. Put a funk on it. So <laughs> our doctor or doctor. Oh my God. I've already messed up because I'm so okay. flustered. What is um, this? <laughs> Our guest today is Dr. Avi Sakotopoyo, maybe? Okay. And then she is a Greek psychoanalyst based in New York. She is on faculty at the NYU postdoctoral program in psychotherapy and psychoanalysis, where she also trained and teaches in other psychoanalytic institutes. So she has published work and uh, actually has a book out this week that we're going to talk about. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Nicole, thank you, Sarah, for welcoming me. I'm really excited for the conversation. Thank you for joining us. Like you have this incredible roster of things that you've accomplished in your lifetime already. And here we are. (laughs) are. Here we go. So you're from Greece originally, right? I'm half Greek, half Cypriot. Um, Okay. So So you're very in tune with that culture of what it is to be a good girl. How so? What's the connection? <clears throat> I connect it to like my ethnic past and how I've always been taught, like, be sweet, stay uh, kind, mm-hmm. don't mm-hmm. cause a fuss, don't yeah. create any kind of unnecessary attention or cause any kind of unnecessary, what is it called? Ruffling of the feathers, if you will. Mm-hmm. So when you decided that this was your path that you were going to take, was any of your... Um, upbringing influencing this at all this is so interesting now i see what you mean um actually this whole thing about not not ruffling feathers has not gone well for me like totally right gone well. me either yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nicole either that's why we're here doing this <laughs> um so yeah like I, I grew up in greece and i grew up in cyprus i grew up in both places uh moving shuffling between the two cyprus uh for those listeners who are not familiar with it is a small island a sovereign nation right off the coast coast of turkey and across from syria and lebanon um and my mother is from cyprus my father is greek so i was kind of like i grew up in between these two cultures um which kind of like really very early on exposes you to the fact that culture is kind of like fictional, that, you know, if you grow up in one culture, you think this is how things are. If you grow up in two cultures, you're like, oh, nothing is stable. Like everything. It's all made up. (laughs) Exactly. Everything's made up. We just, we just choose this and follow it. Okay. (laughs) Uh Uh Exactly. Well, I mean, Sarah went all the way back to the beginning, but I'm going to jump ahead because eventually you made your way over to New York I did. and 
continued your education and now you are a professor as well. And what inspired you to go to New York? Was it that they had the best program that you wanted to do for psychoanalysis? Because based on your, even just your small intro that I gave, it seems like you have a very niche like understanding of certain topics and your book is about sexuality and consent. And so did you feel like going to NYU is the best place for that? Um, I actually came here for my uh, graduate school training, which I didn't do at NYU. Uh, I did it at Yeshiva University and I came here to do my PhD, but really I came here to be an analyst because I was determined uh, ever since I was 13 that I was going to be a psychoanalyst. And what I came to realize after the fact was what I was also trying to do was actually go elsewhere and live in a place where I could be openly queer in a way that I would have never been able to do in my country. Uh-huh. Either of my I two love countries. this. Um, I love this. But did you know so- that psychoanalyst was an option, like a career at 13? <laughs> <laughs> the way that I knew it is because I picked up um, a book from my mother's shelf, which was believe it or not, like a really unusual and actually really important, it turned out, memoir that somebody had written about their psychoanalytic experience. And I read it and I was like, wow, like that's a thing. Like somebody can say to somebody like, I'll take on all of what you carry and try and sit with it and work with it and help you with it. I was like, wow, like I want to be that thing. So I was like on a mission after that. Uh, And I, I took many twists and turns, but eventually I came to New York to do a PhD on the way to becoming an analyst. The PhD was just like a stepstone because what I really wanted to do was become a psychoanalyst. Just a stepstone getting your PhD. I'm like, that's a very lifetime achievement situation for me over <laughs> here. So, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't mean to diminish it, but what I mean to say it no, was like- at all. <laughs> no, not at all. I'm just like impressed. So yeah. we um, all have different paths. Yours just right. has some- steeper stones than mine <laughs> aggressive aggressively <laughs> steep grades that I don't have in mine either um so at 13 did you decide that also that you knew what your sexuality was and and you had to like figure that out too or you just knew you wanted to help people at 13 you know uh, neither <laughs> uh, I <laughs> did not know my sexuality at 13 I, I actually I'm not somebody even though I work a lot on sexuality in my private practice has a lot of kind of like queer people that I work with. And I think a lot about queerness. I, I, I also don't think that there is such a thing as knowing one's sexuality. I think that you know what you are at any one particular moment and things shift and one can kind of like stay where they are or move. Like certainly at 13, I didn't know. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about the complexity of how I understand myself now. Um, but I also didn't think, oh, I want to help people in this kind of like self-sacrificing way in which I might have <laughs> Like a martyr. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not that. I think I think that part of what appealed to me about that prospect of like sitting with somebody in, over an extended period of time was kind of like the fascination with, wow, like relationships can happen like that, can be durational like that and take a lot of difficulty and heat and something important may come out of that. And I was like really impressed with that prospect. And of course, had no idea what I was getting into because what I thought being an analyst would be is not at all what being an analyst is. <laughs> I mean, to some degree, that's exactly kind of like what I'm trying to write about in the book, but in, from the perspective of consent, like you think you know what you're getting into, but it's not until after the fact that you know what you really got yourself into. 
Um, right. It's a really interesting point because yeah. especially when you're younger and you haven't experienced anything, you could be like, okay. And then afterward, <laughs> be like, I'm not no. okay. <laughs> exactly. Like, yeah, sure. Use that. I did not know that's what that was for. exactly and perhaps you know more so as you were saying Nicole like when you're younger but even later in life like you know you quite know what you're signing up for um and And that could go for anything right not only consent but like a job yep or anything yeah I had a guy on a date one time like we were we were having a fun time on the date and I, I wasn't giving off like vibes like you, you know, I didn't get like any of the icks from him or anything. So I felt like I, like it was, you know, going well, the vibes were good. And when we were leaving the restaurant, he goes, he asked if he could touch me. Uh-huh. And I was like, like my, my first reaction was to laugh just because of the way it sounded to me. I'm like, I don't know if I've had anybody say, can I touch you? (laughs) Like, can I hold your hand? Can I give you a hug? Can I, you know? And so I, it was, I was reflecting back on it and I'm like, why was my gut reaction to laugh when he said that? Like he was trying to be respectful. Because I, like for me, I would, yes, we've already established that we're chatting and like hanging out and we're, we have that like closeness, but I guess it's a good thing to like ask too. To me, if I treat you in a way where it's like, all right, yeah, we are friends, then you already have the authority to touch me too, I guess. I mean, I don't know about that. That's different than what I'm saying. Yes. (laughs) But when it comes to consent, it's a different era now than it was when I was growing up and and what that means to me. And hopefully what it means to society, I think as I was um, becoming of an age where you were having sex or exploring that giving consent was more equated with making sure that it's nothing abusive, like, or, you know, that you're not going to like, or I said, no equals, you know, like if he keeps going, then it's rape, right? Like it, it was very kind of black and white. And so then now to be, in my late thirties and have a guy go, can I touch you? It's just such a different, <laughs> I was like, and so I, I was excited to talk to you today. Cause I'm like, there is definitely some, some psychoanalysis that needs to go on here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's so interesting because when you said that he said, can I touch you? And you said, and you were uh, hesitating. The thought that came to my mind was kind of like, you could have touched me before you asked, but now not so much. <laughs> um, yeah. It's interesting to think of like, yeah. what's, question about like I was the other day I went to uh, to the movie theater and I was um kind of like that my ticket was going to be scanned and the person who was scanning the tickets touched my phone and then in a semi-panic said to me did I have your consent to touch your phone (laughs) And, and I think it's the same kind of anxiety that you're talking about Nicole when this person says can I touch you because yeah like I mean what does that even mean touch you how it depends like can he choke right Probably not on the first day. <laughs> like, you you know, show me? No. <laughs> no like, so I, I personally like to work up to the choking. <laughs> <laughs> I 
<laughs> not me. I'm all in. First day, let's run it. <laughs> it's like, I mean, we're kind of like playing around, but what I'm trying to say is that not only is that question not clear, what it, what it actually asks, but I think that there's no question of the sort that is clear. That even if somebody were to say, can I lift my hand and touch your right earlobe and hold it for five seconds, like press it gently, like even something as specific as that actually doesn't tell you what you might feel when that happens or what might open up in you when somebody touches you in a way that's totally unexpected, right? So there's a fantasy that we have about consent that it's going to like, kind of like keep us safe or give us pleasure or make sure that we're not violated. But, you know, the truth is like, kind of like consent that kind of framework over promises and it's it's a it's a pure fiction it's a fantasy that we can adjudicate sexual relations by by these kinds of kind of like exchanges right and like the the um if you don't like it you were you gave them permission so what's your problem well I didn't know that would feel that way I didn't like it (laughs) part of what I'm yeah go ahead you're going to say something. No, I was going to listen to you talk because you're the expert. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, I was going to take us in a somewhat kind of like ob- oblique direction from here to say that, you know, if if there is this kind of like sense that consent is not going to help us out of that, then how might we think about consent? And one of the things that I try to kind of like raise in the book um, is the question of like, what does it mean to begin to think of consent as an internal affair? as something that has to do with what we are allowing ourselves to experience or to be exposed to, uh, including things that may startle us about ourselves or kind of like surprises, as opposed to kind of like thinking about consent as only minding the boundaries or minding our safety with another person. Before we even get to the other person, there's also the question of like, what are you open to experiencing? It's, it's just like consent now in this conversation is so much more involved than a yes or no. It's so much more than a moment in time where you're trying to be okay and like get the okay to keep going. It's, and it's very intentional. It's more intentional than I think I ever realized because going through and thinking like, okay, I have a bad response to this. How do I respond to the person doing this to me? If that's somebody that you genuinely love and care for, you don't want them to feel like you're upset at them for doing something you agreed to yeah I think you know when you say it's kind of like even even more kind of like I don't remember the word you used you said if it's even more specific you said what's intentional intentional it's even I would actually take it even further than that and say that however carefully it's thought through and however intentional it is especially in the domain of the erotic consent kind of like any kind of encounter with another person opens you up to something potentially new Mm -hmm. and intention begins to kind of like wither away when intensities rise and when excitements come about and when you might find yourself in a situation that you might have not anticipated but feels exciting here's an example if I may so there's Mm -hmm. this by a, a queer theorist that I really love it's not one of his best known papers but in this paper I love it it's called the art of piss Um, and what he um, describes in that paper is is a really interesting experience that he had he talks about he's a gay man he talks about going to to leather clubs and talks about having had experiences with piss play always as a top 
and has have ne having never been on the receiving end. And then he talks about this time that he is in um in in one of these bars, and this kind of like guy comes up to him. He doesn't even see his face. He takes him back to a dark room, and kind of like he gets him on all fours. And now this the author is beginning to basically give oral sex to him. And as he's giving oral sex to him, he realizes he he starts feeling something warm, and then he realizes that this guy is actually pissing in his mouth. Oh. And and then and here here comes the interesting part. And then he has this spectacular orgasm. And he writes, I did not consent to bottoming this way. And if I had been asked, I would not have consented. But that night, this stranger gave me the gift of erotic astonishment. Huh. Mind blown. Mind blown. <laughs> so, you know, if he had said, if in a parallel universe, he felt the guy piss in his mouth and he had gotten up and said, how dare you? I never agreed to that. If, if he felt as much as being like rape or violated, we would have been like, I totally see it. Like this guy didn't ask, like he had no reason to assume this would be okay, right? We would not mm -hmm. be saying, what are you talking about, you're hysteric. We would be saying, yeah, like I see it. But here's something else that happens in this moment where he feels the piss in his mouth and he's like, wait a minute, something is happening. And before his mind catches up with him with, we're not supposed to want this, like his body kind of like basically is flooded flooded his body <laughs> literally <laughs> and figuratively <laughs> erotic affect which yeah. is one of the most spectacular orgasms so here the notion of affirmative consent is not going to take us very far right it's like i think some part of it like for the sexual side of things too it's like consent would be like i'm okay to do these things but here's the things i'm not okay with like it comes with like a laundry list of things that you're not allowed to do but here's mm -hmm. the yes to this question yeah. i mean yes and also it requires you to know ahead of time what you will want or not want right it, okay it's you right if you're gonna say so labor intensive <laughs> yeah i mean we put a lot of labor into staying safe yeah I mean, so yeah and protecting so yourselves and a lot of times i may tell someone that I like I'm not into something because I just don't want to do it with them <laughs> okay that, like, from a consent perspective like you can use consent as an excuse to to be like he was super creepy or he kept trying to touch me or whatever but then if it was a guy that I was super attracted to I'd be like oh my god he kept trying to touch me it was so uh -huh. cute you know it, it's it's but dependent I think, too i think that's legit to like to you know to want yeah. this this person and not that with that person you know yeah. i think that that's legit i think you know like so for me like the question is more about kind of like what do we use consent to manage in our interpersonal relationships like what do we draw boundaries about and what are we open to and what happens when we have experiences like the one that I was just describing from the from this theorist whose name is Tim Dean? Like when Dean describes this experience, he's basically talking about kind of like catching himself too late, like after the question would have been asked, 
and encountering something different in himself, something strange in himself. And the book is very much about experiences of the strange that have to do with unconscious life and that have to do with what in psychoanalysis we call the sexual drive, which is not so much about guarding oneself. It's about risking experience. I think personally, I live my life kind of like by the seat of my pants, just because I like to see what's going to happen. I don't like having control over that kind of stuff because then I know I'm, I'm going to miss things that I think could be remarkably entertaining or whatever the case may be. So in terms of like loosely consenting to a lot of things, that would be me Mm -hmm. just because I like to see the other side of things, but I can see where people would be on the flip side of things and be like, want any ultimate control, consent to everything. And I know who I am. I know what I like, what I don't like. I'm going to put things walls up and make sure that that never happens again type things. Yeah. I mean, this thing that you call loose, loosely consenting in the book, I, I use the term limit consent to talk about like okay. how that kind of consent comes up against your limit. Um, and it also poses questions of ethics. So if you are kind of like consenting at the limit of what you can expect or anticipate and something goes wrong, do you have the integrity to say that was a risk that I took or does it yeah. turn to the other person. I'm not saying you, you. Like, right. Yeah, yeah but- no, I'm agreeing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm being agreeable with you. You're like, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> <Yeah>. Sarah <laughs> enters all. Yeah, she <laughs> enters all situations. She's like, I'm a soft yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's very true. I'm always here for it. <laughs> <laughs> Only because I've seen, and but like, and I do enter, not to make it about me, but I do enter these situations, whatever, knowing that I'm the one that's making the decision to participate. So if something happens, it's not, it's nobody's fault but my own. Mm-hmm. And I learned that at a young age for some reason. So like, I still carry that with me, but yeah, I don't blame other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's maybe why consent is such a weird topic because yeah. people don't like to be blamed for stuff. Mm-hmm. But then if you present something like in a consent, like in a fashion and somebody needs to consent to it, it's really based on like what your lens is. And if your lens is different than that person's, it could be a bad thing. Yeah. I mean, it's tricky, right? Because it's not like you can say, oh, dump that consent model because, you know, I mean, I'm thinking of like how hard feminism has fought to kind of like put these banisters in place. Uh, and to make sure that kind of like sexual violations can be named and harassment can be acknowledged. So I'm certainly not arguing for like throwing all of that out, but I am saying mm-hmm. that that's an insufficient model for thinking, especially about erotic intimacies, as opposed to like, you know, it's one thing to talk about like at work or in the bar, or, but like you're with somebody and kind of like things arise in these encounters and, you know, that, that can actually be extremely important. Like for example, this experience of Dean with a stranger, he's a stranger, but what they experience or what he experienced with him was extremely intimate. They're not intimate in the sense of like connection or a bond. Like this is the guy who kind of like took him to the back and like pissed in his mouth and he had this experience and he hasn't had it with anybody else. That's not nothing. No, so- that's a lifetime memory. Right. Mm-hmm. Core, that's a yes. core memory that'll never be erased or removed over yeah. yeah, yeah. And one thing that I find interesting about consent is which because you've mentioned that you've studied and and are trying to I guess be in a place where you're more comfortable too of being queer yourself and talking about all of this right is that if there's um representations of this in 
society, especially pop culture, there's been a lot more that's come out, I feel like, in the, the last few years. You have shows like Euphoria, right, where they're depicted as high school students, so they're learning their way, supposedly. But you also have two people who are going okay, I'm doing this. Is this okay? Now I'm doing this. Is this okay? Now I'm doing this. Is this okay? And I'm like, oh my God, if I was in that situation, I'd be like, shut up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a lot of spontaneity that's lost. Mm -hmm. It seems to to me to be reflected that way in more queer situations or gay situations, because it's people trying to um, discover their sexuality. Or at least that's mm-hmm. the, you know, the umbrella that it's put under or they're like reflecting this is their first time, you know, they're a man. It's the first time with a man. Um, and so I feel like that's been in a lot more television and movies lately. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder if it's a true representation mm-hmm. of life and like if it actually makes sense, because would you in real life, like every time you moved your hand is this okay (laughs) right you know I'm like "Ah, I don't know what's realistic yeah yeah what's realistic especially when you have that that layer of trying to determine if you're non-binary if you're gender fluid if you're all these other things I mean, look, I think, is it, is it a realistic representation? Like, I think it depends who you ask. I'm sure that there are people who live their lives like that. Um, right. But, but here's kind of like, here's, here's a twist to think about this, to kind of like, think about erotics, kind of like, not just on the level of like sex, sex, um, kind of like w- one of the preoccupations that I have in this book is a play that I saw a few years ago that started running in New York and the, sla- the play, it's called Slave Play. Um, I don't know if either of you have heard about it. It was it was written by a black queer playwright. And it's kind of like when it opened in New York, it was extremely shocking. People would walk out, there were petitions to shut it down. It was extremely controversial. Why was it controversial? What year what year was this? Uh, 18, 2018. Okay, not 1818 though, right? Like <laughs> we Nicole and I have been doing um these hose of history episodes where we've been really exploring like the 18 early 1900s and it's oh. funny because I'm kind of putting you in that category like you could be a hoe of history with all this remarkable stuff that you're doing <laughs> and it's kind of funny because it's the patterns are uh-huh. New York that people have walked out of <laughs> because That's it was too much <laughs> So I'm sorry to cut you off. Continue, please. No, no, very... <laughs> interesting what you, know, you say that because a, a, a big chunk of my interest and in where the book starts from is where I did my dissertation, which was on the Marquis de Sade, who lived during oh. the, the French Revolution. So here we go with a historical. Yeah. Oh, we're look picking... at that. <laughs> um, a little bow we just put on that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. But okay. Then, so this. So the show was in 2018. Um, yeah. And I feel like that's really kind of like in our time, probably one of the most open times we've been, right? Like in terms of like who we are, who society is, like right. questioning our reality, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Right. So, okay. So the play is called Slave Play. And the, the play is, as the playwright writes, it's both not what it sounds like and it's exactly what it sounds like. And part of what makes it complicated is in the first scene, you have kind of like three interracial couples 
that are engaging in what you might think of as kind of like sexual intimacies, but they are really weird right from the get-go. They're all white or white passing and black partners. And some of them are gay and some of them are straight. And the, the intimacies are actually very much, they look like racial humiliations and racial violences. So you have kind of like, kind of like a really, kind of like really um, heated up confluence between sex and racial history and kind of like a lot of nudity and simulated sex on the, on the stage. And you walk through the plane, the first act is so upsetting, that's when people get up and walk away. So people are called racial slurs. The white partners are doing things that are kind of like really racially offensive. Um, it, it's really hard to understand what is going on. And by the second act, what you come to realize is that, oh, these were scripted. These were couples that were actually playing out scenarios that they had agreed upon ahead of time. Mm-hmm. But what you're interesting, really, it's really strange, right? It it actually is modeled on a type of BDSM play that's called race play that actually exists a niche fetish, but it exists in the real world. Oh, we know we've actually experienced. uh, We had a guest, one of my friends, actually, he had a woman, uh, he's Mexican, and he had a woman that liked to basically bash him in the bedroom. And he was like, I don't care. Let's do it. <laughs> she was like, yeah, my little landscape groundskeeper, you blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? Just like the racial uh-huh. ties mm-hmm. to what they do. All, but he was like, I'm all for it. I don't care. So we've, yeah, we've encountered some of that before, but not to that extent of, yeah. you know, the black and white problems that we have yeah. in the country. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's unusual that you would even know this, right? Uh, and that you've already worked with somebody who, who was talking to you about this, but this is even more intense because it's actually black people and white people which right. is the history of this country is kind of like yeah. really really kind of like the anti-blackness and the racism is really intense uh even even today so so you see them play out these scenes and you're like what are they doing why would somebody in their right mind participate in that and perhaps not surprisingly it's the white people who have tr- most trouble participating the white people who don't want to be racist right um the black people, on the other hand, seem to be like really enjoying it. Actually, what they're doing is they're protesting the white partner's hesitations or lack of enthusiasm. But what you come to see throughout the play is that that lack of enthusiasm is not about disinterest. It's about inhibition. There's too much anxiety. So you, you begin to see some of these crop up in the conversations throughout the play. So here you have, so you walk into this play. Let me let me kind of like zoom out and now go back to what we we're saying earlier. So you walk into this play and what you're prepared for is kind of like a performance, but you walk in and you're kind of like hit with the force of something that is very alive and that in some way like embroils you, like you're laughing at some jokes. Are you laughing as kind of like from what place are you laughing? Are you laughing as an audience or are you laughing as a white person watching something that's racially humiliating? Like you, you instantly have to interrogate yourself and you have just gone out to watch a play like you you didn't really sign up for kind of like the kinds of excitements and anxieties that come up in being exposed to that so like one the 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 director says um one of the things that he says is you came to this play you want to watch something that's called slave play it's going to have to cost you like you're not going to walk out of this kind of like feeling comfortable so this is a very interesting encounter because of course you've signed up nobody dragged you into the theater, 
but this is definitely not your thought you were signing up for, especially like at the beginning, like now audiences know what more or less what they may be getting into. So here's another, you know, one of the things that I really put a lot of interest in in the book is kind of like, how do we think about these kinds of encounters that are not about sex, but are also encounters with art that meet us at places that kind of like really startle us, startle us about ourselves, startle us in terms of our own participation or, or interest or enthusiasm. Um, yeah, art is one of those things. Uh, so when I, I was, I'm an artist by trade. And, and when I was in college, there was a performance piece where um, one of the guys was suspended by his skin and hook hooks at his skin. Uh-huh. And as, as I'm an open person, that didn't bug me at all. But as there were people going through and looking at the performance piece, a lot of them were very offended and upset. Mm-hmm. And they, you should have told us there was going to be blood and you should have said, and then like, mm-hmm. yeah, that makes sense. It would be upsetting if you weren't anticipating seeing some guy hanging from his skin and hooks. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's, it's one of those things where it's like, so then do we create this society where we always have to ask, Hey, this is what you're going to encounter. Are you going to be okay with this before you do anything like going through the park, walking through the mall, if there's ever going to be a thing like that, again, going through grocery stores and stuff like that. Like, do you think that eventually society is going to be just so offended that we're going to have to do this massive consent to everything before we do anything? I mean, I I hear your concern in that, including because, you know, one person may be offended by the blood, another person may be offended by the suspension, another person may be offended by the blind. Right. I mean, how do you know exactly what you need to work on? And certainly in the academy, these things have been debated for, for some time now. Yeah. And then considering it's art, it's subjective. It's not supposed to be something that makes you feel good about yourself at the end of the day. That's not the point. So, so in some ways, this book is written for people who savor experiences that are difficult and who kind of like find the experience of being made to endure something difficult, interesting which is not the same thing as good or fun, right. enjoyable. Um, right. It's like consent to do the inner work that I don't want to do. <laughs> exactly. Actually, that's that's very well put. And this part of like the work that I don't want to do in the book, I call it the bending of the will, that you have to bend your will in order to allow yourself to be exposed to something that you may not want to be exposed to. You may not want to encounter in yourself, let alone in the in the outside. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's I love exactly- that. Mm-hmm. And speaking of your book, the the title, even I need you to break down for me because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we've taught we we've kind of hit on on quite a few things, but so it's called sexually beyond consent, risk, race, and traumatophilia. Mm-hmm. You- Sexu- sexuality beyond consent, risk, race, traumatophilia. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what's traumatophilia? Thank you for that question. Thanks for the, <laughs> thanks for pitching. I could have Googled it, but I waited. I wanted to hear it from the source. <laughs> Actually, you, you wouldn't find very much about it because it's a word that is not kind of like, it's a, it's a made up term. Okay. Uh, a couple of people have used it, but I made it into a central tenet in this book. And basically is, it is, so the word traumatophilia comes, it's a composite word. It comes from the word trauma and the word philia, which is, which means an affinity for, like when we say that somebody is kind of like an Anglophile, like they really kind of like like British culture, you know? So- Oh, Nicole. Oh, there we go. I see. Nicole. She just likes the accent and the, and the baking shows. <laughs> I actually did go to London. I do love it there. Um, and it is 
there is a core part of me because like even when I drink too much, I'll pretend that I have a British accent. So <laughs> <laughs> it'll come out. It's amazing. I always I used to try to get her there on purpose all the time just because. Uh-huh. <laughs> so you anyway, with that example. <laughs> I, apparently you saw right into my core. <laughs> 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 calling you out yeah <laughs> okay so it's a compound word so okay so composite word um from trauma and, phil- and philia um and what i what i try to do in the book is talk about the you know we talk about trauma um from usually from the perspective of it being very difficult or something that scars you or something that stays with you and that then makes you kind of like perhaps close up in yourself or needing treatment or needing to repair or heal. But part of what I say in the book, which is actually quite provocative even for my field, is that kind of like this idea of like healing trauma is a fiction. And that in Mm -hmm. fact, I certainly as an analyst have never seen anybody get kind of like healed of their trauma and returned to who were before the traumatic experience. Neither have I seen any of my colleagues' patients go there or neither have I ever heard of a colleague speak about somebody who has just been restored to who they were before the trauma. So I can, I can agree with that and say, I've personally never, I don't believe people who are like, I'm totally fine. Everything's great. It's not a big deal anymore. It's like, Mm -hmm. wow. It's Mm -hmm. like, personally again Sarah's world when I cope with trauma or whatever it is I remember that it happened I remember who I used to be before it and I know who I am now and that's that Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know what I mean like it just it's another building block for who I am as a person now if the trauma is too big obviously we have to unpack it and figure it out make my life terrible but (laughs) I guess I interpret heal trauma in a different way because I wouldn't expect to be the same person that I was before. Like, there's no way that's not possible. You've lived (laughs) through an experience. And if it was traumatic enough for you to have to work on something in connection with it, then you're not going to be the same person anymore. Mm -hmm. However, when I think of healing, I think of it as I no longer um, let it control future outcomes or I don't have to like obsess about it or I don't like, especially in relationships, like, okay, this guy cheated on me. Well, I can't take that out on the next guy. Like it's not his fault. Right. So that's something I have to deal with. Um, and those emotions that go with it and being comfortable, uh, opening myself up, knowing that I had something traumatic happen. So like, that's why I'm like, I, I totally agree with you saying like you can that you're not going to be like magically restored. But I also look at it like I'm just I'm I'm just figuring out how to deal with it. Yeah, right. I, I hear what you're saying, and I hear the distinction you're drawing. Let me let yeah. me like come at it from another angle and then connect it to that. Like, so you know, I'm I'm thinking of something that Sarah said a moment ago, and she said, "Okay, I remember who I was, and I know who I am now." So this idea, kind of like that trauma, kind of like we we tend to think of trauma as disrupting us or warping us, or kind of like we were going this way, and it kind of like in a way, kind of like causes us to deviate and go another way. But but I, what if we think of trauma is part of the argument in sexuality beyond consent as something that also informs who we are, that mm-hmm. it comes folded 
into who we become and that that's not necessarily a deviation from who we should have been. Um, mm-hmm. Also, way in the world. Um, and what if that trauma, like part part of kind of like the big emphasis in the book is kind of like when I talk about philia and tra- becoming traumatophilic is that we are, that we're also um, drawn to our wounds. We're drawn to touch them, to pick at them, to make contact with them. The, the trauma is not just something that we leave behind. It's also something that we want to return to. So mm-hmm. this is that you can exercise your demons, right? Which is more connected to what you were saying, Nicole. Like it's not mm-hmm. about kind of like extracting them, but exercising them. At, le- at least your ghosts are not controlling you. Mm-hmm. But what about the ways in which we actually want to be in touch with experiences of pain, uh, experiences that have wounded us? So, you know, what if we think, for example, of some of those scenarios that I was saying from kind of like race play scenarios or from this play, or people who want to suffer through difficult art, like, like Sarah was saying, like, I'm down for that. But how do we think about like wanting to be near the side of trauma? And we don't have a way of thinking about that except through pathology. Oh, you were so traumatized. You can't stay away from it. We just need to fix this so that you don't keep returning to it. But what, what about sexual experiences? For example, like we know, you know, some people get raped and then want to kind of like play out scenarios around rape afterwards. Is that a control thing? Sorry to interject. That's the thing. Like the only way that we have of thinking about it is this is about trying to get control over it. Mm -hmm. This is what in my field we call repetition compulsion. You're compelled to repeat the same thing as a way of like mastering the, the lack of control that you had. But what I'm proposing, I would say that that's traumatophobic traumatophobic in the sense of like it treats trauma something that we should be afraid of and move away from Mm -hmm. what about people who actually gravitate to trauma and I think that you know many of us if we really think about it kind of like keep revisiting the sites of trauma and they're not however difficult they may be they also kind of like sometimes come with some excitement or some inability to stay away from it certainly kind of like sexually they can be enthralling Mm -hmm. so ways to think about that if we think traumatophobically as this is just about mastering it mastering it like you know maybe you stay away from it or maybe you only repeat it in a very controlled way i touch this but not that the way we were thinking about consent earlier mm-hmm. like moments that people like just throw themselves into experience that that's what traumatophilia is about and part of what i argue is that trauma for reasons that i we can go more into if you're if you want to hear more about that is actually particularly porous to the sexual it becomes especially okay yeah tell me (laughs) sarah (laughs) like i'm thinking more or less trauma is not necessarily negative it's just based on who it's happening to so for my perspective on something versus nicole's perspective on something it could be traumatic for her and not traumatic for me which is where i'm thinking trauma isn't necessarily always going to be the bad Mm -hmm. it's the the building Mm -hmm. it's like what creates you so then it's like Everything happens for a reason. That just is all I hear now. <laughs> right. right, right. This idea, like whatever it doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Yeah. And what if it doesn't? What if it doesn't? What if it make? What if it changes you? Yeah, it doesn't necessarily have to be a good or a bad. It just changes you. Mm-hmm. Right. It's there's been many things that I've done that I've learned my mistake. Like you know, make sure you 
close the door all the way before you go to bed at night. Otherwise somebody will get into your house. Like that kind of stuff mm-hmm. can be traumatic to think about that happening, but nothing ever happened potentially. And mm-hmm. it's not to diminish that it can also be like very difficult and painful. Like, especially when we're talking about trauma, oh, yeah. rape or kind of like, you know, the play that I'm working with kind of like takes on the history of kind of like slavery and chattel slavery in the United States. Obviously I'm not saying, but if you're just this and it doesn't matter yeah no right (laughs) minimizing that but I am trying to say kind of like so for example you were asking about the title Nicole and kind of like what what does beyond consent mean like how do we understand let's say let's take one of those race play scenes did do the white to the black partners consent to being treated this way like somebody could say you can't consent to that like you've grown up being treated this way what are the conditions like are these really fair conditions under which we can assess if somebody had the agency to want this or not want this but if we see agency as only coming out of conditions that are not traumatic then somebody mm-hmm. kind of like so then kind of like what kind of agency are we talking about with a person who's black and who's born into the history of the intergenerational transmission of the trauma of slavery or who's dealing with racism from day zero not even day one right of like if that's the agency that we're thinking about if we're thinking with consent as coming from somebody who is not constrained by history or by trauma then we are basically imagining a white consent that is mostly white and that is actually quite um of like idealistic like this this circumstances don't exist yeah Mm -hmm. the whole time you're talking i'm like well actually that sounds quite boring (laughs) (laughs) a life where you have to have this idyllic I don't know understanding or consent or if you don't actually go into experiences and get surprised or have maybe something traumatic like it just what do you that sounds so boring like not that I'm advocating that like bad things happen but like good things can happen too like you were saying and so I'm like oh wow Mm mm-hmm that wouldn't be, that wouldn't be a fun life. It wouldn't be. And then the, where the agency comes from, it's like, you have a different lens on life and what you think is acceptable is only acceptable because you've been experiencing it for so long, but whose version of acceptable is the most important. So is it really that bad if that person's born into something, not saying slavery, but something that you maybe view as negative as a woman but as a man I don't know I'm trying to make up an example it's not really flowing very well but um just the concept of having this ability to make your own decision based on your education is dangerous like you were saying (laughs) I, I think you know it's interesting that you bring in gender because certainly those arguments have played out in feminist debates oh yeah uh, like for example is kind of like is is the woman who um kind of like is the lesbian I mean, these debates were very hot in the 1980s during what was known came to be known as the sex wars like is is a is a femme dyke that wants to be with a butch is she just like kind of like reproducing the toxic masculinity is is she kind of like laboring under some sort of false consciousness um Right. Kind of like, so what that leaves out is that 
patriarchy is also like, it's, it's the water we all drink. Kind of like, how would it not inflect some people's desires? And to say, well, but these are not your desires, they're inflected through patriarchy, as if there's another way to live. Right. I'd like to say that we don't have it. <laughs> no, um, we don't. So kind of like, so the question of like, beginning to um, this disqualify people's desires, because they don't match what we think they should be. Uh, is part is part of what I've put a lot of pressure on in the book. Uh, yeah, because we all have different lenses. Nicole and I are completely opposite people, but we're best friends for life, forever and always. But I don't like pastel colors, and I hate the color pink. Yeah, and do, she do, loves it. Yeah. What about anglophones? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she doesn't care. Oh, that's funny. Um. Well, we're so excited that you shared all of this with us today. And, you know, it's, it's like, we could talk to you for hours and hours and hours because the topic continues to roll into many other things, Mm -hmm. but I'm also just wondering too, at like a certain point, it's just like, can't you just be like, I just like this right? or, and I don't, and not dig into the why or (laughs) I don't know. I'm just Are we allowed I'm like, to just be like that anymore. Yeah, are, we allowed, yeah. are we allowed to just be like, I just like this. It's nice. And that's that. Like, is it, I th- are I we th- just beyond that anymore? We can't, we're not allowed. <laughs> no, I think that's a terrific question because this question of like, what is this about? Where is it coming from? Um, that kind of like these whys that we ask, certainly in my field, we ask them all the time, uh, kind of like miss the parts of ourselves that cannot be put into words. They miss of like the the strangeness and the oddities and the, the opacity that we have even to ourselves, not because we don't know ourselves, but because thankfully, and I think this is the guarantor of our psychic freedom, we we can never quite know ourselves fully. And that's a good thing. Yeah. I'd be freaked out if I knew a lot about me. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't be good. Mm-hmm. Or to know the other fully. You know, there's such a prizing right now you know, when you were saying, Nicole, like, do we have to like, know? there's such a prizing right now, really knowing the other person. But if you think about it, I mean, think about this, like, think about like, you know, if you're on a second date, you're with a new lover and they're like, I want to know everything about you. And you're like, yeah, like, it's so exciting. Know everything about me. Like, you know, like swallow me up. Right. But, and I'm like, oh God, okay, like well- I, my, my response is always like, can you say something more original? Can you ask me something more specific? Like, can you not use the term? Like, they're the type of person who would be like, I am looking for my partner in crime. And I'd be like, okay, never mind. I'm out. <laughs> it's a cliche out of it because what I was trying to say. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding with you. But like. <laughs> okay. So you're saying like some things are cliches. And actually, that's exactly the point. That yeah. All of these cliche ways of relating. Right. Because somebody who is like, if you're four years into a relationship and somebody's like, I want to know everything about you, like, that's creepy. Like, you begin to feel like, no, I don't want you to know anything about everything about me. So, kind of like, there's something about the parts of us that are not known and cannot be known or that we keep for ourselves as a way of kind of like be that's what guarantees our separateness from each other. And right now, there's such a pressure on knowing each other and understanding each other and really. Kind of like coming to see where the other person is coming from, that it can at sometimes feel suffocating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, there's so much going on around what you've been through, what I've been through. Why can't we just enjoy this moment without all that for 10 seconds? Yes. 
that would be lovely. Mm-hmm. Can't. <laughs> She's like, I wouldn't have a career if that was the case, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so that was the time where we transition into at a girls and it's where we say something good that's happened to us or, you know, something that we're proud of. We just like to, uh, end the show on a positive note, little pat on the back. And so my at a girl is that a friend of mine was, she saw a different friend post something about making their own signature scent, like making their own perfume. And she was like, Hey, do you want to do this? And we made a whole day trip out of it. And I was like, yeah, of course. Like I'm down, I'm down for experiences. So (laughs) I, um, I'm like, sure, let's, let's ride. And, uh, then afterward, I randomly came across like an old note in my phone and it was a bucket list that I had created. And on my bucket list was make my own perfume. So Stop it. I got to check something off of my bucket list and I have this amazing perfume that smells sexy and expensive that I've named bougie. <laughs> <laughs> that I cannot wait to wear. <laughs> I took it to my brother's um yesterday we went like we had a little family get together for his birthday and um I was walking around making everybody smell it (laughs) how did it go they all put it on it wasn't overwhelming though it's not like the whole house was like (laughs) oh she left she came to a house left a Sephora it's fine (laughs) (laughs) oh girl Add a girl. I, uh, I'm actually really proud of myself. I've established a little bit of a routine and I've gotten into getting myself prepared every morning. So I, before I do anything, start spinning wildly out of control. Cause I have ADHD like crazy. Um, I started writing down a list of things to do for myself so that I can ensure I get the little things done in the morning. So like, you know, brush my teeth, <laughs> check, take vitamins, check those types of things. But I will say that seemingly silly, it has freed up a lot of my crazy brain space for calm, I guess you could say. Like, I'm not frantically searching for what I have to do next. So I've been doing that for about a week now. That's been working out really well. My mornings don't suck anymore. It's been nice. That's good. I was watching a TV show. God, I'll have to look it up and tell you what it is because there was a girl represented in the show who was like on the spectrum. She was Mm -hmm. autistic, but I'm not sure. They don't get into like details. However, that's how she operated was she had like a list for like get dressed, brush her teeth, like pack her bag. Like, and so she would go do the thing, then run back to her list, go do the thing and then run back to her list. It's a sense of accomplishment. You really just cannot achieve anywhere else. (laughs) I'm the type who likes to write down things on my to-do list that I've already done just to get the feeling of crossing it off. (laughs) Yes. That's my life now. It's wonderful. (laughs) But, you know, establishing a new routine after starting a new job has been kind of crucial for me. So it's been good to like get that going. And then like establishing the healthy side of things, like physically being active in the morning. I've done this put a stretching routine there too. So yeah, I'm pretty excited. Great. What a girl. Thanks, Paul. <laughs> okay. Avi, did I say it right? 
Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Perfect. Do you have a, an had a girl or, you know what? You can also just say, I wrote a book, bitches. Like that's good too. <laughs> I wrote an advisor, advisor, bitches. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have, I have a launch this week. So I'm very excited about that. Mm-hmm. We're that so happy amazing. for you. Thank you. I'm like excited to read it, honestly. Uh, after the conversation we've had today, I'm very curious to see how it reads. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, no. Like, you know, one of the things that I was going to say is like, you know, if, if you kind of like, if you read it or if anybody who's listening is reading it, like, and you have thoughts about it, like, I'd love to hear from anybody who's reading it. Like, okay. You know, like reach out to me, like you can engage with me in social media or kind of like reach out to me, like on kind of like wherever you read your, you leave your reviews. Like I'll, I'll be reading stuff that people post online. So So people can get your book from Amazon, right? And is it available or going to be available anywhere else? Well, it's definitely the the best place to get it is NYU press. Um, because then you get it kind of like, they go get it to you like right away. And they're really good with kind of like their shipping. Uh, and it's also good to like support to these presses because they're going out of, kind of like it's, it's, it's easy for right. kind of like get eaten up by Amazon, but yes, mm-hmm. it's, on, it's on NYU press. And, um, and, you know, if anybody's interested, like, you know, there's a lot of events that we're doing so people can check out my site and kind of like some of the events are virtual, some are in person. Yeah, cool. What's so your can, what's your website and social media handles? Uh, my website is my first and last name at uh, kind of like dot com. So it's a v g i s a k e t o p o u l o u dot com. And my um, my Instagram, which is the best place to engage with me, is a v g i. Sorry, strike that. A-V-G-O-L-I-S 98. Okay, perfect. I'm I'm really excited that you're open to hearing feedback. I personally would have to come up with some sort of suit of armor, I think, for the (laughs) the stuff that could come when you're talking about the topics that you're talking about. Um so good for you for being like, I'm going to read the review. You are probably stronger than I. <laughs> she clearly knows who she is inside it out. You know what I'm saying? Like she's got that. And other people's reactions are not her problem. Let's be honest. That, yes, that is true. That is true. So everyone. Oh, go ahead. I am really curious. Like I'm not just. <laughs> racing. Yeah. Yeah. So no, everyone- I get it look up her website and read more about um, what she's studied and the concepts that are in her book. And thank you so much for being on today. People can find us on Instagram at homance underscore chronicles. Um, Email us to be a guest at homancepodcast at gmail.com. And we have a close group on Facebook where we share, you know, naughty memes and such the homance chronicles a judgment-free zone. So oh, I found you. I found you. <laughs> you found me. That's right. Thank you. I send it to Nicole. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for being here. Homance out. Thank you so much. Thanks for the invitation. It was very fun. Thank you.